It's not about optimism, but it's about hope. Optimism makes you lazy. It's, oh, everything will be all right, la la la, you can just lie back. Hope is about getting up and doing something, right? Hope impels you to act. It's about the possibility of change. And I think that good journalism should be infused by, by hope. You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties, trivialities and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life. But what might we be getting wrong? In this series, I'll be exploring outrage culture, arrival fallacy and the perils of instant gratification and lobbing some pretty big questions at my guests like, why do human beings find change so hard? What would a more inclusive society look like? And what is the difference between optimism and hope? This is a podcast that looks at the little things and the big things and asks, what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Rutger Bregman is a journalist and historian and the author of two best-selling books, Utopia for Realists, Rupert Murdoch was pictured reading it on a sun lounger, and a new one, Humankind, A Hopeful History. A dissection of popular myths about modern society, including the bystander effect and the Lord of the Flies theory, that people will descend into cannibalistic chaos when left on an island, Humankind is an extremely readable book about why human beings are basically good. If you loved Sapiens or you're a fan of Malcolm Gladwell, you'll love Rutger's genre of big ideas. I spoke to Rutger earlier in the summer, a few days after Humankind came out, to chat more about why human kindness is a controversial idea, the importance of reading good news as much as bad, and the difference between optimism and hope. I published a book called Utopia for Realists a couple of years ago that was about a couple of seemingly crazy ideas, like, for example, giving everyone a basic income to completely eradicate poverty, right? So in that book, I gave a lot of evidence that this could actually work, uh, you know, that it has been tested on a local level, different experiments in Canada and the US ever since the 1970s. So I went on a book tour and started talking about this idea to people and said, well, look at the evidence, look at the science. It does work. Now people are not really lazy. They, they want to do something with the money. They start a new business. They, you know, find a new job. Uh, they don't waste it all on alcohol and drugs. It actually works. But then again and again, after 30 or maybe 40 minutes, I found myself discussing not the evidence with people or the science, but human nature, because that was the most common objection people had. It's like, yeah, maybe this works on a local level. Maybe this works uh, in this experiment. But in the end, you know, you'll have to deal with human nature. And, you know, people are just selfish. That's what they are. They're lazy. This is not going to work on a bigger scale. Um, so that's when I realized that so many of the ideas that I was excited about, not only universal basic income, but also, for example, participatory democracy, you know, just letting average citizens uh, have more of a say in, in, in political affairs, they all sort of relied on a different view of human nature. So that's what got me started working on this book. The idea that humans are innately selfish creatures comes from Thomas Hobbes and is expanded mm -hmm. upon by... Richard Dawkins and the selfish gene. And that idea has really shaped modern society. Why do you think this is wrong? Why are we not innately selfish? Yeah. Um, what has happened 
in the past 15 to 20 years in science is that scientists from very diverse disciplines, anthropologists, archaeologists, sociologists, psychologists, even economists sometimes, have moved from a quite cynical view of human nature to a much more positive, a much more hopeful view of who we are as a species. And this is also new, you know, this is also recent that they often don't know it from each other. You know, at one point I was talking to a brilliant psychologist who was doing, you know, pathbreaking work into the behavior of people who uh, experience an emergency and actually help each other. And I told her about new things that are going on in biology. And she said, oh, my God. So it's happening there as well. Right? So sometimes these specialists are so deep in their own research that they don't know what's going on in the field next to them. And what I wanted to do in this book is to connect the dots, to show that there's something bigger going on here. And is that where homo puppy comes in? Yeah, yeah. It's this term that I came up with. This is one of the most important breakthrough findings from biology from the past uh, couple of years. So what evolutionary anthropologists and biologists have discovered is that actually for centuries, for millennia, it was the friendliest among us who had the most kids and so also had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. They literally talk about survival of the friendliest. Uh, now, the technical term for this is self-domestication, because that's basically what it is. I mean, we know what domestication is when we look at other animals like pigs and cows, etc. You know, we've selected them for tameness and for friendliness. So that's done, you know, sort of in an artificial way. We do that, you know, you start with a wolf and you end up with a chihuahua. But that <laughs> exactly the same process, you know, the process of domestication has also happened to us, you know. And actually, I think it can also explain why we have conquered the globe, right? Why we built pyramids and, and spaceships, why we built musea and the Neanderthals are on display there. Because it is exactly this friendliness, you know, this, this ability to cooperate that made us so successful compared to other species. So what you're saying is that we are bound by our friendliness more than we are bound by our selfishness. That we are yes, friendlier yes. than we are selfish. Yes, human beings are so, in so many ways, we're social creatures. I mean, you can look at our own bodies and, and see that we've been designed by evolution to work together. So one very peculiar fact about us is that we're the only species in the whole animal kingdom that blush, right? Which is, I, I thought that was totally fascinating, right? I love that fact. It's so good. I couldn't believe it when I read that. How did your research bring you to that point? Well... Um, obviously, I was wondering, right, what, what makes human beings so special? Why, why did we conquer the globe and why didn't the Neanderthals do it? Um, and, and at first you think, well, maybe it's because we're so smart. But then you think about that for a while longer and you realize, well, actually, on an individual basis, we're not very smart. Like, really, we're not. <laughs> if you have an, an, an intelligence test and, and you let a human toddler compete with a pig, then usually the pig wins, right? Um, which is, I mean, I, you should keep that in mind the next time you eat bacon as well. But I mean, that's another book. Uh, <laughs> that's your next book. Um, yeah, I guess so. Uh, but it's, it's really clear that we're not that smart. If, also, if you look at our brains, they're actually smaller than the brains of the Neanderthals were and of, of some other uh, hominid species. So is it that we're so strong? Maybe that's the explanation. Well, no, we're, we're not very, very strong compared to, for example, chimpanzees. We're not even very good at climbing trees. So it sort of becomes this real mystery. What, you know, what made us so successful in the end? 
And I think the answer is that if you can cooperate on a skill that other species can't, you, yeah, that can sort of really be your, your superpower. And the only way you can do that is, well, if you have this capacity for friendliness. And it's not only blushing here that helps. I mean, blushing obviously helps sort of to convey your, your feelings to someone else. You even do it involuntarily, which really establishes trust between people. Um, but the other thing that, that we have is we have really special eyes. So if you look in the eyes of people, you'll see, well, you can actually see what they're looking at. Um, so we have white around our eyes. We have white sclera, as it, as it is called. Um, all the other primates, you know, the bonobos, the orangutans, the chimpanzees, you name it, they all have sort of dark around their eyes. So it's, it's a little bit like they're poker players, right? Or, or mafiosi with, with dark sunglasses. Um, they're trying to hide their gaze. And um, yeah, that's very different with us. And, and people that you can actually look into the eye, well, it's much easier to trust them, right? This has all been very important in the success of our species. That's incredibly interesting. And you're right, people who maintain very good eye contact you do, yeah, you inherently trust and, and, and you engage more. But I love that about the different primates. Your biggest revelations in the book are the debunking of a collection of hugely influential and long-held cultural myths. Firstly, the Lord of the Flies effect, a theory posited in his novel of the same name by the author William Golding, that when human beings are left to their own devices, they turn savage. Can you explain how this theory has shaped our understanding of humanity and Western society and how you cast doubt on it? Because you went on a really incredible journey with this one. Yeah, it's, it's obviously a hugely famous novel, right? I think way more famous in the UK and the US even than in the Netherlands, you know, where I'm from. I did read it when I was 16 years old. Uh, and I remember, you know, I, it made me depressed. But I also thought, yeah, this is probably how how kids would behave. So what happens is there is a, an air crash. People uh, or it's like 20 kids shipwreck. Well, not shipwreck, air wreck. Mm -hmm. <laughs> how do you call that one? Air wrecks, probably. Uh, right. I don't know. Air wreck. They end up on this uninhabited island. And um, they uh, at first they think, well, this is wonderful news. You know, we can have a party. We can just enjoy ourselves. They try to establish a democracy of sorts, but it doesn't really work out. And then they start fighting and they start fighting more and they, you know, develop all these horrible urges to fight with each other, to pinch each other, to... Anyway, at the end of the novel, three of the kids are dead and the message is, this is just what happens. You know, civilization is only a thin layer and if you leave kids on a line, and even if they're very well behaved from really good boarding schools, then this is still what's going to happen because human nature is going to take over. So I read that book when I was 16 and I... I sort of believed it, I guess. It's, it's, it's a strange thing that you sort of intuitively seem to believe this. For me, it felt like, okay, so no more Harry Potter for me. No more Little Princes on Prairies. This is the realistic view of human nature. Finally, I've grown up. It was only much later, indeed, that I started to doubt the whole story. And you and your wife took a road trip, right? In order for you to yeah. look at what had kind of become known as like the real life Lord of the Flies? Yeah, yeah. So I wondered, has it ever actually really happened? Well, it took me a long time. But indeed, after a couple of months of research, me and, and my wife found, uh, found ourselves in a, in a, well, we had rented a car in Brisbane 
on Australia's east coast. And we drove three hours to the south. And there, there was a man, Peter Warner, 19 years old, who told us the story of the boys of Atta. Now, Atta is an island in the Pacific. Uh, it's close to Tonga, an island group there. And um, what happened in 1965 is that six boys there, uh, well, they were students of a boarding school, and they were, well, they were basically fed up with school. They thought it was really boring. They hated school meals. So they thought, you know what? We're going to go on an adventure. And that's what they did. Uh, they uh, borrowed a boat from a fisherman they all hated. And um, then uh, they made a big mistake already on the first night. Uh, they fell asleep, ended up in a storm, and drifted for eight days. Um, then they shipwrecked on this island, Ata, which is not really like this happy paradise tropical island, but it's really like a big rock sticking out of the ocean. And incredibly, they managed to survive there for 15 months. And the way they did it, well, again, it's all about friendship and cooperation. Another sort of depressing parable, for want of another word, that I was so pleased to see you apply your rigorous research to was the bystander effect, which is often told through the tragic murder of Kitty Genovese, which is when a young woman was stabbed in Queens in New York in 1964, and 38 people allegedly witnessed her murder and did not intervene. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what you found when you looked into this and why your debunking of this cultural myth is actually really important for our understanding of human kindness? Yes. So this is one of the most famous stories from psychology and also one of the most famous homicides that happened in the 20th century in America. So... Sort of the standard story that has always been told is Kitty Genovese was stalked and killed by her assailant. And meanwhile, 37 people were watching it happen in Kew Gardens, you know, this really respectable neighborhood uh, in Queens, as you said. And no one did anything, you know, not even called the police. There was even a couple who opened the window, put two chairs in front of the window, uh, dimmed the, the light for a better view and, you know... It's really a horrible, cynical tale. And again, I used to believe this. Uh, I've written about this in, in earlier books of mine, and uh, I, I, I've told the story quite a, quite a few times. It was only later, you know, while researching this book, that I uh, started to have my doubts. Because what a new generation of psychologists have actually been doing is, well, in the first place, they've started to look at real incidents in real lives. So a lot of what we know or what we thought we knew about this so-called bystander effect, as they call it, uh, the behavior of people when, when an emergency is happening, someone's drowning in the street or is attacked, um, a lot of that research was based on lab experiments. So you have sort of this theatrical situation, right? You have a subject that comes into the lab and then, I don't know, there's a bit of smoke and then they try to see, you know, does, does this person actually help uh, another person who's in need? Um, but then now there's a new generation of scientists that's thinking, well, wait a minute, we don't have to rely on these kind of lab experiments. We can just look at what happens in real life, right? Because we live in cities these days that are full of cameras, right? It's CCTV everywhere. So we can just go, go to the police and ask, you know, can we collect these videos, make a big database and then see what actually happens? Well, the first researcher who did this is a woman named Marie Lindegaard, and she discovered that, that actually in 90% of all cases, people help each other. And the more people see something happening, 
the likelier it is that you will will be helped. The original bystander effect, the idea was that the more people see something happening, that means that you won't be helped because people are like, you know, it's not my responsibility. But in reality, the opposite happens. People actually find support uh, with each other. Now, and then the question obviously is, but what about this Kitty Genevieve story? Well, it turns out this was fake news before the term existed. Um, we now know, based on, on recent investigations from historians and, and journalists, is that actually uh, she died uh, in the arms of one of her best friends who you know, ran down, endangering her own life. I mean, the, the murderer could still have been there. Um, and those 37 witnesses, well, they didn't really exist. I mean, that was just a list of people who had been interviewed by det detectives. And most of them hadn't heard anything or had heard something and thought, oh, that's just something com coming from the from the bar. You know, there was a cafe on the corner of the street. Yeah, it's the real story of Kitty Genovese is much more a story about sensationalism by journalists, you know, that tried to make this in some kind of urban apathy story that just wasn't there. And also a lot of bad science that came after that. But luckily, there's now a new generation um, who's uh, cleaning up the work. And, and the mess, I should say. <laughs> you talk about uh, that idea of negative news. Uh, you call the news a uh, nocebo, which is the inverse of a uh, placebo. And it's the idea that the news makes us feel like the world is worse than it is. And that feels really relevant at the moment with this 24-7 mm. rolling news cycle. You know, many of us have BBC bulletins pinging onto our home screens hourly yeah. at the moment what is the danger of this negativity bias on how we see kindness in others the news focuses mostly on things that go wrong on corruption on violence on terrorism you name it so if you watch a lot of the news then often at the end of the day you know exactly how the world doesn't work right you have this completely upside down view of the world of human history of of human nature uh, I give you a couple of examples here uh, in the book. Uh, if you look at air crashes, for example, uh, airplanes have becoming safer and safer over the last couple of decades. Uh, but actually, the attention in the news for airplane crashes has gone up, you know, quite a bit. So as airplanes became safer, there was more attention in the press for airplane crashes when they still happened, which, you know, then makes people more afraid to step into increasingly safe planes. Right. So this dynamic, you actually discover that quite a lot. A similar study has been done with uh, immigration and um, a sort of incidents around that and then the attention in the press. And again, you, you find this inverse relation. So actually, in times when there is there are few incidents with immigrants, there's a lot of attention for that in the press and vice versa. So there's one of the researchers who said in that academic paper, and I, I love this line, where she said, there seems to be no or a negative relation between the news and reality. So, <laughs> I mean, that makes you question, what kind of information are we consuming every day, right? What are we putting in our, in our heads? So I think that means that we have to think as carefully about the information that we put in our heads as we think about the food that we put in our bodies, right? I think that's really important. And also, I suppose when one person reports something, it then 
you know, the sort of cascade effect of other media outlets reporting that reporting, because that's something that mm-hmm. really happened with this. You know, we hear a lot now that, oh, human mm. beings have the same attention span as a goldfish. And that was really confusing mm. a lot of scientists. And they realized it had all come from one study by Microsoft in 2015. And that had become the basis for every single article that you read about how yeah. we don't have any attention span anymore, all, all from that one study. I know, I know. This happens so much in science reporting, you know. I've really thought about that quite hard while writing this book because I wanted to write a book that people can still read 10 years from now. Well, that's actually, it's, it's really that's a hard, hard thing. to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because everything is de- developing so quickly and so often you have a paper in Nature or Science, right, that is, that is the talk of the town on one day and then, then a year later it's all debunked, right? So what you start doing, if you have this question in your head, I want people to be able to read this 10 years from now, what you start doing is you start relying on research traditions, right? Or on so-called mm-hmm. meta-analyses, where researchers put together, you know, dozens of studies to see if there is an effect. And then often the conclusions are less spectacular, you know? It's often also a bit more common sense. For example, a lot of psychological studies have been debunked. You know, there are all these fleshy insights about, oh, if you see someone like in like a videos of old people, then you'll walk slower yourself as well. You know, all this priming research. Well, most of that doesn't replicate, you know, it doesn't turns out to be nonsense, which I mean, if you think about it, that's pretty logical as well. If we would be nudged all the time, right, and be influenced by everything we see, we would be like these, I don't know. Uh, skippy balls that would go well, boom, boom, boom. I mean, that would make life pretty crazy, right? I do feel like that, though. Um, I do feel like that ball right now. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> well, my point is, yeah, it's 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 really good to be wary of this dynamic in in reporting about science, and that science is not just it doesn't really work like one study changes everything. It's this very slow process where you know an accumulation of studies makes you realize, hey, maybe this is going on. I really liked your idea of reading newspapers on a Sunday rather than engaging immediately and constantly with the news. That's something I try and do, but it's quite hard to keep to in the pandemic. And I wonder, do you think it's the media's responsibility to change the way they report on stories? Or is it down to us as the individual to vary our media diet or to change our media diet completely? I do think it's a responsibility of journalists to try and think about what they do, right? There's now this whole new current of what they call constructive journalism. And that's not the same as sort of positivity all the time, right? I'm not saying that. There are a lot of terrible things going on in the world. And I'm actually quite worried about some of the big challenges that lie ahead, whether you think about climate change or the extinction of species. But what I think journalists should do is zoom out focus on the structural forces that govern our lives, and then be constructive about it. Not only talk about the problems, but also talk about the solutions and also report about the people who are you know, working on those solutions. That can give us a little bit of hope. And this is an important distinction as well, right? It's not about optimism, but it's about hope. Optimism makes you lazy, right? It's, oh, everything will be all right, la la la, you can just lie back. Hope is about getting up and doing something, right? Hope impels you to act. It's about the possibility of change. And I think that good journalism should be infused by by hope. I think that's really important. I totally agree. I read something the other day that said, you know, we don't need hope, we need realism. And I thought, no, people mm-hmm. need hope more than ever right now. 
yeah, maybe maybe hope and realism are actually in many ways the same. <laughs> you know, often often when um, when people say I'm a realist, they mean you know I'm a cynic, or yes. or if you if they say to you you should be a bit more realistic, they they mean oh you shouldn't be so idealistic, right? You shouldn't have all these hopes and dreams. If I've tried to do one thing with this book, it is to to make the the case that actually the cynics are really naive, right? And it is actually realistic to have a more hopeful uh, view of human nature, to actually believe in our ability to cooperate, to work together and to be kind to one another. I love that. To this day, you write, our culture is permeated by the myth that it's easy to inflict pain on others. I wanted to ask you about how this translates into our internet selves. Earlier this year, the Be Kind hashtag started circulating in the UK to combat what was seen as an escalating cruelty online. Is it harder to be kind online than in real life? I think so, yeah. I think so. I mean, you have to imagine that or realise that for thousands of years we lived as nomadic hunter-gatherers and we were able, when we communicated with each other, we were able to see one another, to look at one another in the in our eyes, you know, with the white around our eyes and follow our gazes. We were able to see each other blush. I really liked the parable about the two wolves and I think it's a real reminder to all of us when we're on the internet. And I wondered if you could read it out for me. Okay, here we go. An old man says to his grandson, there's a fight going on inside me. It's a terrible fight between two wolves. One is evil, angry, greedy, jealous, arrogant and cowardly. The other is good, peaceful, loving, modest, generous, honest and trustworthy. These two wolves are also fighting within you and inside every other person too. After a moment, the boy asks, which wolf will win? The old man smiles, the one you feed. It's good, isn't it? I mean, I know it's a bit cheesy, but it's sort of the, the message is so simple, but so true as well, right? What you assume in other people is what you get out of them, right? If we assume that most people are selfish, then we'll start designing our whole society around that idea. You know, our schools, our prisons, our workplaces, our democracies, and that's what we'll get. Now, if you assume the best in each other, if we feed the good wolf, then we can have a very different kind of society. You admit that you are a little bit sentimental, and so am I. And I loved the quote <laughs> by the filmmaker Richard Curtis that you included. And he says, if you make a film about a man kidnapping a woman and chaining her to a radiator for five years, something that's probably happened once in history, it's called searingly realistic analysis of society. If I make a film like Love Actually, which is a film that has had quite a lot of stick over the years, which is about people falling in my, love. My favourite film, yeah. <laughs> and there are about a million people falling in love in Britain today. It's called A Sentimental Presentation of an Unrealistic World. Why are we, and I by that mean the collective we, not you and me, because I love love actually as well, why are we generally so cynical about sentimentality? Do you think it has a vital role to play in keeping us content and hopeful? It's a really good question. Maybe it's a bit of a patriarchal culture as well, sort of sort of that that people are sort of or especially men are afraid to show their feelings it's just possible right now to to be a different kind of guy today you know you're not being forced in this straight jacket is that a word 
yeah. uh, of 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 a certain kind of maleness, and um, the, you can be a bit more uh, more open about. Well, actually, I thought Love Actually was. I really liked that actually. <laughs> uh, I thought it was a good film um, because it's about you know things that that are really important to the human experience. Indeed, people falling in love. So uh, um, I think that that's what I really liked about the Richard Curtis quote as well. Is uh, it's in many ways it's a very his his take on human nature is very realistic. It's about things that happen every day, but then we dismiss it as sentimental. Why? And there's something quite interesting that a film that's all about love could generate so much ire because it is a real Marmite movie. Like it's a love or a hate movie. Um, mm. People get quite up in arms about love, actually. And it is a film about love. It's a film about a really a nice thing. Um, and I think that's yeah. interesting because it's it's. Well, you know, it's a radical idea. And as you say, it's a political idea and it's a scary idea for people to think that maybe we're generally good. You know, that has its own implications. Yeah, yeah. it's a very dangerous idea as well. Right. So people may think, oh, this guy has written this warm, nice, sentimental book about the power of human kindness. Well, actually, if you really think it through, it has quite revolutionary implications. Because if we can trust each other, if we can actually work together, then maybe we don't need all that hierarchy anymore. We don't need all the managers, CEOs, president, kings. You know, there's no justification for the inequality we have today. It's, it's not there anymore. So you have to realize that the cynical view of human nature has been used for centuries as a legitimization of hierarchy and huge power differences. So if you adopt this new view of human nature, the more realistic, more scientific view of human nature, that most people are actually pretty decent, well, if you really think it through, it means a political revolution. And are you hoping your book starts a political revolution? Well, I mean, I, 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 I'm just part of a whole new movement. I think, I think that that's really what's going on here. So the first half of the book is about the the scientific revolution, you know, about all mm -hmm. these scientists from different disciplines moving to a new view of human nature. And in the second half of the book, I, I sort of try to apply the theory and I use case studies of people who are already doing it, you know, building new schools, uh, building different organizations with very little management that, you know, work with self-directed teams and rely on the intrinsic motivation of the employees or even prisons, you know, as they have it in Norway, really crazy prison system where they actually treat prisoners as people, right? And um, they have the freedom to uh, make music. Uh, they have their own music studio and a, uh, a music label that is called Criminal Records in one of these <laughs> Norwegian prisons. And it works, you know, it has the lowest recidivism rate in the world, the lowest chance that someone will commit another crime after he or she gets out of prison. So that is what really inspires me, those people who are already doing it. The only thing that I'm saying is there is something bigger going on here. You mm -hmm. know, these are not isolated incidents. They're all part of a much bigger movement. There's a really wonderful website called Tank's Good News. Um, and Tank is this, uh, he's like a Instagram personality. And he started this Instagram account called Tank's Good News. And it was so popular. You know, people were really latching on to the fact that every day there is good news. And again, that shouldn't be radical. Mm. But like you say, there's a negativity bias. And so then he started a website where he posted stories every day about uh, stories of hope, stories of kindness and generosity and scientific innovation, a, a mix of all of those things. And it 
is so wonderful to read. It really, you can feel what it does to you when you're reading this website. I love that. I love that. You know, this is one thing that it's it's often hard to let the good, you know, the, the banality of the good, you know, the, the daily kindness and niceness we have in our lives to let that go viral. Uh, reality television makers have known this for a long time. So if you put people on an island or you put them in a golden cage or something like that, and you just leave them, well, nothing happens. They just drink tea, they play cards, and it's very bad for television, you know, it's terrible for ratings. So the makers of reality television, Big Brother, Temptation Island, etc., they've known for a long time that you have to lie to people, you have to deceive them, you have to set them up against each other. And then maybe after a while, something small happens that you can take out of context and then feed to someone else. And maybe then something starts happening and you actually have your show. But otherwise, nothing happens and yeah, you, no one's going to watch your show, right? It's going to be really boring. So this is, this is one of the, the challenges of the good is that often we dismiss it as oh, boring, whatever. We know that. I've tried with this book sort of to find stories that are about the good of humanity, but that, that you also want to tell to, you know, to your friends that are actually not boring. <laughs> the biggest challenge of for many people, I think, will be that thinking about kindness as something innate or universal is, of course, genocide. How could the Holocaust have come about, for example, if we are all inherently kind? Well, this is obviously one of the big questions that hangs over my book. How can you ever say that humans have evolved to be friendly and kind when we are also the species that, you know, have done all these horrible things, wars, the Holocaust, ethnic cleansing, you name it. I mean, it's clear that we're not only the friendliest species, but also the cruelest species. I've never heard of a penguin that says, okay, let's exterminate another group of penguins. You know, that's a very human thing to do. So, I mean, obviously I can't, I can't sort of give a short answer. It's one of the big questions of our history. Um, but maybe we can find the beginning of an answer in this new theory from biologists, this idea that we've evolved to be friendly. Because if you think about it for a little while, then you discover that actually there's also a dark side to friendliness. Friendliness can often morph into group behavior or tribal behavior. Kind of herd psychology. Yeah, yeah. And that we sort of find it hard to go against our group or against the status quo. And then you also discover that throughout history, a lot of horrible things have been done actually in the name of things that we tend to see as good. Like, like comradeship or loyalty or friendship as well. I've got one chapter in my book about the German soldiers during the Second World War who kept on fighting in 1944 and 1945, even though they, were, they knew that they were going to lose the war, but they kept fighting because of their comrades, you know, because of their friends. They didn't want to let them down. Um, so this is a phenomenon that you see a lot in history. And I'm, I'm obviously not saying it's the ultimate explanation, but it's, an, it's a, a part of the puzzle. What about random acts of atrocity, like domestic violence against women or random knife crime? Oh, that's a good question. You know, one of the things I realized after publishing this book is that I probably should have written more about domestic violence. Um, and I thought about it quite a bit, you know. The interesting thing is, is that if you look at nomadic hunter-gatherers, they live very different kind of lives, right? So they had a much more life that was about togetherness all the time uh they were they were on the move obviously they had these 
egalitarian groups, you could easily switch from group, right? If you didn't like this particular group, then you could go to some other. And we also know from ethnographic studies, you know, uh, anthropologists who actually lived and studied these nomadic hunter-gatherers who still lived in the 19th or the 20th century, um, we know that also there was relative equality between the sexes. Patriarchy is a quite recent invention. It's an invention of civilization uh, that originated with um, the moment we, we settled down and started doing agriculture and built cities and villages and you name it. So that has also made me think about domestic violence. I mean, it's obviously something that happens behind the walls, right? In, in, the, in the, the privacy of, of the home. And often other people don't know about it, or maybe they do and they're, they're afraid to talk. It's also something about the way we live our lives these days, where we, I don't know, sometimes you look at, I, I sometimes have that in my neighborhood, and you look at all these houses, and you look at all these walls, and you're like, hmm, this isn't the only way you could live a life, right? This is the only way you could live together as a community. But yeah, I, to, to be honest, I think it's a real gap in my book, and that I should have written more about it. I think that's interesting what you say about how we're kind of very individualized now into our immediate families and we are behind those closed doors. So you're not you're not moving around in a community. It's yeah, things yeah. are more private. And I wonder if there's something interesting psychologically about that. Yeah. Can I give one other example? Because Yes, please. Well do. this is actually in my book, so I can say something about this. It's it's uh, schools. So I used to think that bullying is just a natural thing of the human experience, right? Bullying just happens, and, and especially kids. You know, they just do it. It's part of their nature. And, you know, obviously we have to fight it, but we're never going to completely get rid of it. Well, actually, that's completely wrong. Sociologists have known for a long time that bullying is really a product of very specific institutional circumstances. Uh, bullying happens, especially in, in so-called total institutions. So what are total institutions? Is, is the places where, well, in the first place, you can't get out. It's, uh, it often has like clear borders and walls. There's a strict schedule. There's a strict hierarchy, etc. So think of the typical British boarding school. That is a perfect example of a total institution. You know, the kind of boarding school that the Lord of the Flies children would have went to. That is the perfect environment for bullying. Uh, think also about uh, a nursing home where often the elderly uh, can't get out. Uh, think about prisons. A lot of bullying happens at prisons. But then if you design these institutions in a different way, I've got one example in my book about a school that has, you know, very different regime. They've basically abolished everything that we think of when we think about a school. So no homework, no hierarchical system of, of, of teachers and, 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 and learners. Um no tests, no grades. Um, the kids can just follow their own intrinsic motivation and follow their own learning pathways. And one of the most striking things, and I, I really experienced this when I visited the school, was there's no bullying going on. It just doesn't happen. Also, I guess, because everything is mixed, right? So all the ages and all the levels are mixed. So then you get a very different kind of dynamic. And I sometimes wonder if you could replicate that kind of situation, which is much more like a sort of nomadic hunter-gatherer situation, uh, where everything is more diverse and everything is more mixed, if you could replicate that in other circumstances as well. So this is obviously an interesting time for us to be recording, and I can't help uh -huh. but wonder where we'll be at 
when the episode comes out. But a lot of the things that you're writing about, a lot of the kind of cultural assumptions and the structures and the routines have obviously been thrown into sharp relief by the pandemic. Children currently Mm -hmm. aren't at school and Mm -hmm. uh, we're all in our homes. People are helping each other out a lot with grocery shopping. So we're seeing a lot of kind of local social cohesion that's maybe been eroded in the last couple of generations. How do you think, and I know this is a big question and we are in the eye of the storm, how do you Mm. think the pandemic could change the way we feel about kindness and the kindnesses that we show to others? Mm -hmm. Well, obviously I can't predict anything, but I can say what I hope, right? I think that if you zoom out a little bit and look at the, the value system that has that we've been living by or that has governed us for the past 40, 50 years. And that is often called neoliberalism, right? Um, I think the central dogma of that value system has been most people are selfish and just deal with it, you know, design everything around that. Uh, And then, you know, you'll have prosperity, you'll have economic growth. And we have seen now the results of that system. You know, we're wrecking the planet. We've got an epidemic of, of anxiety and burnouts. And um, it's not working, you know, it's killing us. So what I hope is that now is the time to to move to a different kind of value system that is much more about connection, about solidarity, and that, you know, at the heart of it has a different view of human nature, a more realistic view of human nature and who we really are. Not to say that people are angels, because we're clearly not. We're capable of the most terrible things, of violence, of jealousy, you name it. But we're... Deep down, I think more inclined to our better angels. And um, if we assume that it's in each other, then we can start building a much better society. Thank you so much, Rutger Bregman, for coming on Doing It Right. Thanks for having me. This is fun. If you enjoyed this episode of Doing It Right, please do subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast platform so that you can enjoy more episodes out every Monday. Mm-hmm.